0: Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field in the classroom each week. Each episode of this podcast can get you one full hour of CE through our partner, emt-ce.com, so head over there for more information. Awesome episode planned today, guys. As uh, always, I'm your host, Steve Williams. With me, as usual, Dan and Holly. Guys, say hi.
1: Well, hello, Steve.
0: Hello, hello. So we're going to be talking to the EMS coordinator at Rialto Fire. His name is Joe Powell, and he's doing some really cool stuff. He and his department are doing some really cool stuff with uh, cardiac
1: arrest response. And it's so we want to super wanna, cool awesome. to see people going outside the box. Yeah,
0: very outside the box. You know, I love asking why are we doing it that way, right? Mm-hmm. You know, right. It's good stuff. Should we get him on the phone? Let's, Let's do, do it. it. Okay. Hello. Hey, is this Joe? This is Joe. Joe, this is Steve Williams. How are you doing, sir?
2: Good, sir. How
0: are you doing? I'm good. Hey, with me is Dan and Holly. And before we get started, we just wanted to say hi and thanks for taking the time to be on the show with us. We're really excited to have you on. Yeah,
2: Absolutely. Glad to be on. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Can you just give us a brief introduction about who you are and how you got involved with this whole, you know, big change to cardiac arrest response?
2: Yeah, well, I'm, a, I'm a super, super honored to be here, so... Uh, good to be talking with you guys, and, and uh, hopefully we can get some information across that uh, that will help everybody move forward. Yeah. Um, so I'm the uh, I'm the EMS coordinator for the City of Rialto Fire. Uh, I'm, I've been running calls since I was uh, 15, so that puts me about 41 years in the field. And, um, so I've been doing this a little while. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> we've uh, we've had some good good successes in Realto. We've been published. Actually five times in the Western Journal of Medicine. Uh, we've had a lot of good pilot programs, uh, you know, including this, this cardiac arrest survival program. But, you know, as you kind of asked, you know, how did we get started in this? A lot of people think that we took, <laughs> and we had this, we had this perfect setup. We, we sat down and we had this comprehensive look at our data and we looked over the data and said, here's where we're missing something. And then here is the, nice progression and the beautiful steps we're going to take. And we're going to go back and look at that data every three to six months. And we're going to make another step and we're going to, you know, double blind placebo control peer reviewed <laughs> study. And uh, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, that's not at all how it, how it, you know, worked out. Actually, it was a very, uh, very clumsy, uh, you know, let's, let's try this. Uh, let's try this. Oh, that doesn't look bad. Let's, let's, let's look at this. Well, that doesn't work. Um, you know, process. To get where we, we kind of ended up and you know I, I say that's good and bad it's probably good because there's a lot of departments out there that you know are, or, or agencies whatever whatever you want to call them that, that don't have the people to to roll something like this out in a perfect in a perfect fashion and we surely didn't either you know we started out in 2009 when we picked up a uh, night uh, CBR device mm-hmm. the uh, the auto Pulse. And at that time, we had paper patient care reports, no QI coordinator. I was the entire EMS division. And the the info for the autopulse made sense. So we rolled it out. I mean, that's right. Okay. <laughs> that's how we did it. We had no money, by the way. We're a relatively broke department. Okay. So we uh, literally rolled it out by hiding it in the lease price of an ambulance. Uh, so nobody knew we were spending extra <laughs> money. Smart, and we like bought. It. Yeah, we bought autopulses from, uh, out uh, of the uh, trunks of sales reps cars.
0: Oh, the like the used that, ones that they were. Yeah. Nice.
2: Yeah. That's yeah. Training it, month, only. Right? yeah. <laughs> it says training <laughs> on it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's, yeah, you know, that's how we, that's how we got them and, and, uh, and rolled it out and started using that process in, in 2009. So we started kind of making, we thought we were making improvements, step by improvements, but you know, we we surely didn't know until we went to a electronic patient care record, um, and until we brought uh, Kevin Dearden, our QI coordinator, and these are looking at the data, mm-hmm. right? So from there, we kind of like, all right, we're cool, right? Because we think we're cool, right?
3: Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> we all do, our,
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Our uh, our ROST percentage has have got to be really high, right? And, and we'll talk, you know, throughout this about Ross and. Surely neurologically attached survival is our goal, not Ross. Mm-hmm. Right? Correct. Um but I, I guarantee if you're not getting the ROS, your normal neuro- neurologically attached survival numbers are poor. Right? Correct. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One goes
0: with the yeah. other, yeah.
2: Yeah. you got to get ROS before you get to Neurologically attached survival. So <clears throat> our ROS numbers initially we got them and they were like uh uh twenty three percent, right? Wow. Which or is like, still that's like, yeah. that's with good, just right? The autopulse. <laughs> That was, so, the you know, we, that was with the autopulse. That was with the autopulse. We oh. thought, well, that's, that's good. That's good. It's not great, but it's good. We thought we were better than that, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're like, wow, what's going on? Why aren't we, why aren't we doing better? Right? So we take a look. We, we start looking at the data and we start looking at the, um, and going out, you know, and actually watching the calls, right? And we're like, what's, what's going on here? What's going on here? And it didn't take very long to figure out that we were using the autopulse just like we were doing manual CPR, right? So you stop compressions to check the rhythm, and you stop compressions to pulse, and you stop compressions to innovate, and you stop compressions to, and stop compressions to move the patient, and you stop compressions all the time, right?
0: Yep, and you're going backwards yeah, be, on, on that pressure that you've built up.
2: Yep. Yeah, yeah. Can see the chart in And the so hand. to be 100% mm-hmm. honest with you, you know, uh, the autopulse is absolutely worthless. You keep turning the damn thing off. Mm-hmm, right.
3: <laughs> so it defeats the purpose. So we had
2: yeah it does right it's a great machine that will do perfect compressions perfect recoil right no you know 100% compression fraction and while you don't turn it off then we were turning it off all the time you know so we had to go back culturally and say hey don't turn the audibles off right Mm -hmm. nothing nothing trumps compressions nothing right nothing should trump compressions and when you go back and look at it and say you know and and I would ask you you know Steve Dan Holly what what should trump compressions
0: um Maybe okay. safety before you even get to the call. Not much.
2: I'll give you, you safety every day of the week, right? Somebody shooting at you, it yeah. Trump's compression. Yeah.
0: But not, not well, one that I can, can really, really consider. Yeah.
2: But, but we don't do medicine like that.
0: No. No. Right?
2: We we do medicine. We, we, everything trumps compression. Right. Airway trumps compression. IV trumps compression. Drugs trumps compression. Uh, checking a rhythm. Checking a pulse. Everything trumps compression. Moving does the doesn't patient. Work. Yeah, moving yeah. patient. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, so, so we, you know, that, that's, that's kind of how we started, you know, we started off with that process, started off looking at the impulse at the and so we started off going, oh, well, we're turning the damn thing off all the time, so that's mm-hmm. not going to work. Yeah. So
1: that's, can I ask you a quick question just, just for it. some background, sir? So, yeah. two, 2009, uh, what was your staffing level? How many people responded to a cardiac arrest?
2: so same as it is now we were we were running uh, two people on an ambulance and okay. three people on, a, on a, a fire engine
1: okay did you have first response from uh, public
2: safety oh so we are we are public safety right? no I meant uh, uh, you, please law, law enforcement yeah uh, yeah we did we did okay. uh, and still do yeah. okay all right um, yeah and then we have paramedics on the engine and paramedics on the ambulance
1: so. okay sounds good all right continue on I'm sorry
2: no no you're good um you know, I think we yeah. That's kind of how we got kind of got started. We started looking at it, so you know, we said, "Hey, we, we got to do something different than what we're doing. Uh, we got to not not turn off the uh, the uh, the auto pulse device, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I don't I'm maybe going backwards here, but you know, when you look at at the effectiveness of manual compressions, um, <clears throat> it's terrible,
3: right? Yeah, it's good I, for about like two minutes. <laughs> we're
2: we're all we're all doing manual compressions. Very poorly, right? Mm-hmm. And we we even define good quality CPR. If you look at the the NIH prime study or prime study, whatever you say that, um, eight thousand patients, right? They define acceptable quality CPR as the compression rate of you know a hundred a minute, give her or, give her take twenty percent, a depth of five centimeters, give or take twenty percent, and a compression fraction of over fifty percent. That's how they define acceptable. Quality CPR. Wow. Now I'm no genius. Fifty
0: yeah. percent. But if you're great. off
2: the chest, yeah. If you're off the chest fifty percent of the time in a thirty minute code, how, how much time are you off the chest?
0: Yeah, fifteen minutes.
2: Fifteen minutes, right? Yeah. If I if I put you on an ECMO machine, right, and I said, hey, by the way, turn that thing off half of the time. <laughs> <laughs> <What>
1: have, have <laughs> ever, right? You put the good calls with me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: I mean, yeah, nobody's going to live through that process, right? Mm-hmm. And we're like, why is our, why are our numbers so poor? Why, why is survivability less than 10%? Right? By the way, anytime you're doing anything that you're failing and 90% of your patients are dying, you should, you should look at it. Right. Okay. I don't know how to say that. I didn't even include a customer, word, right? You should look at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. So you guys right? implemented, Can you, imagine?
4: you guys implemented this based on what you were already doing in 2009. So. You were using the autopulse Correct. exactly the way you were doing CPR and compressions and you were like, right. this doesn't work. So, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How did not, you get your, working. how did you get your crews to be on board with this <clears throat> and, and affect the change needed?
2: Well, so my crews do exactly what I say first time.
3: Oh, so,
4: wow.
3: Um, <laughs> Good for you too. Can you,
4: can you parent my child please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um.
2: Yeah. So, the, so that's, I, I would have to say that it's probably one of the most difficult things that uh, that we have to, to move forward with is um, is the cultural change, right? That we're going to do things differently. We're going to change the way we do things. Um, any number of things, right? So, on top of using a CPR device, on top of not turning it off when you know when to check a rhythm or check a pulse or to innovate or any of that stuff, you know, we we use a gurney. As a, as a tool to sit patients up Mm -hmm. and to innovate them, right? We innovate them on a, on a gurney and we're kind of going all over the place, but you know, I know we've spent our entire life, you know, on our bellies in a pool of vomit on the floor, but (laughs) why don't we put them on a gurney? You know, how many, how many anesthesiologists do you see on the floor of the OR (laughs) innovating a patient, right? Good point. And they
4: have way better ideas than we do.
2: That's true. That's true. So so we put them on a journey, set them up, right? Gets all that stuff out of the way. Innovation's much easier. But you know, that was a change, right? And, and my guys are like, no way. As soon as we put them on the journey, the family's gonna say, You you gotta get in to the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And I'm like, no, that's not true. Just just talk to the family. Mm-hmm. Right? We'll get there. Talk to the family. And then <clears throat> we instituted staying on team for thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. Um that if you have an income CO two over fifteen, you've got to stay on team for thirty minutes. Um, and we can talk about that. That's quite an interesting, uh, journey there, but, you know, same thing culturally, they're like, no way, no way. Right. Well, right. Yeah. Cause you've got
0: 50, percent of your medics. Uh, and this is me pulling a percentage completely out of my butt, but it seems like there's two <laughs> schools of thought on paramedicine. It's stay and play or load and go. And right. you're asking, you know, whatever percentage of, you know, load and goes that you have uh a style of paramedic at your department is nope. You got to hang out for 30 minutes. I can imagine that's a big change for them.
2: It is. And it's, it's a big change for them. They're like, what are we going to do? I'm like, monitor everything, mm-hmm. right? So, right. <laughs> and monitor what's going on with the patient. Yep. The, the, the bottom line is we started seeing, we started seeing uh, loss from a system somewhere around 20, 25 minutes into the code. And and clearly, that was, that was around 15 minutes of continuous compression.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, if you stop compressions at any point, you get to restart that 15 minute clock, right? Right. Because you, you gotta, you gotta be continuous compressions right. for 15 minutes or so before we're ever given any chance of seeing Ross. But that being said, that, that's how we kind of ended up going, well, what, what do I do with that? Cause 20, 25 minutes in, we're getting Ross. And when we take him to the hospital, they're turning everything off, right? right?
3: Right. And the other
2: thing, and I, I'm not in the ring friends with people kind of business for sure. But when you look at it, you say, well, am I wh- – let me ask you this. Who's got a better Ross grade, my fire department or the hospital?
0: Right. right. Yeah, your fire department. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah.
2: My fire department by about double, mm-hmm. right? So tell me why I would – and we know when we move patients, we decrease compression fraction, we decrease the ability to monitor them, we tend to pull out tubes, we do all kinds of stuff, right? So why would I decrease the level of care I'm providing Take my guys code three, risk their life and my citizens' lives to take them someplace that has half the rostering.
3: Right. Good
2: point. Right. Like, Good why point. would I do that? Right? Mm-hmm. And so we're gonna stay right here, right now, and do the care. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of how we got in the in the stay and play, you know, 30 minute realm. Mm-hmm. And we also, you know, as you look at that, we ended up in a situation where, you know, my medics would call the base hospital, and the base hospital would say, okay, get her out. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I gotta do what the base hospital says. So we eventually, because I'm a genius, decided we would not call the base hospital until we were
0: around. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Problems. Uh, so, Joe, yeah, you, you, you said something that kind of piqued my interest. You said this was a clumsy process. It obviously wasn't something that you sat down and planned out to the T. Um, yeah. But the thing that I kept thinking about was how cool is it that you had a group of people who were willing to work towards a common goal even if it was a messy process you know or a journey getting there and so i don't know who your people are but the fact that you guys were committed to a common goal is i think probably the biggest hurdle cuz you have to define that goal and then you know
4: and get everyone You don't have board. to yeah
0: and you don't have to know the steps but you can absolutely you know know that you're trying to go towards something that everybody sees as a good thing
2: yeah, I, I think, you know, because we see ourselves as a, as a progressive department, that helps, right? When we mm-hmm. say, look, we got to do a better job of, of this, um, that's definitely beneficial. But, again, um, there's nobody in my department except for brand-new guys that haven't seen cardiac arrest survival at least seven times,
3: mm-hmm. wow. right?
2: Wow. So, I mean, we go over it and we teach it, and then you go in the field and go, hey, didn't we talk about this? Right? right. And then you go over it and you teach it and you go out in the field and you're like, hey, Remember we talked about this, right? And you know, they're like, "You really want me to do that?" Like, I do. I want you to not stop the underpool,
3: <laughs> right? That's I want I you know. to innovate with the
2: underpool going, right? You know, and so it it's it, it takes a long time to change that culture, um, and you know, even when you train them and teach them, they're out. You don't know, that, that you meant something different. Mm-hmm. So it takes a lot of follow up. It takes a lot of work, and you know, good guys trying to do good work.
0: Joe, when I am looking at the PDF that Realto Fire has put out called "The Wheel of Survival." I see that there's 10 steps in a circular pattern on this thing, kind of like a, a typical ACLS algorithm, and it starts with manual CPR performed by the seat assignment, which I'm assuming you guys break out uh, roles for your cardiac arrest response? Yes, correct. Okay. And then it says after manual CPR is going, the CPR is continued with the uh, Zoll stat pads, and that includes CPR feedback, right, with the puck?
2: Right, right. Okay,
3: and
2: and I don't know if I want to stop you in the middle here or, or not, but uh, yeah. you know, a couple of things important. Like in that step is is that we're going anterior-posterior on the pads.
0: Yeah, and I, um, I I've seen that. Um, can you explain? Like, is it just purely to get it out of the way so that it's not on the chest band
1: device?
2: Yeah, so it does two things for us, right? It it allows us to see see through CPR a little better. Um, it's not beautiful, but it let, let me get that pad out of the way of the band, so see through CPR is a little clearer for my guys, and the efficacy of the fibrillation is is much improved when you go anterior-posterior, which is what all the manufacturers' recommendations are for anterior-posterior. We've just got so used to doing anterior anterior because it's easier, right? That the manufacturers have you know the, the pictures on the front of the package are anterior anterior, right? You know, exactly. And, and yeah. So yeah, <laughs> so uh, yeah, we 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 should be doing that. Okay. and don't let me forget at some point to talk about you know the acceptable pauses
0: of yes. CPR. Part. yes absolutely I've got Go those ahead. on here as well um so yeah. then after that third step is BLS airway management so you've got uh rescue pod BVM and capnography on there
2: right right so yeah so real early on we get the rescue pod in place and we can we can talk about that um, yeah can
0: you can and, you explain what a rescue pod is and why it's beneficial
2: yeah it's it's a little hard to just uh, Explain totally what a what a rescue pod is, but it, it, the bottom line is, it's a device that goes on the end of an airway device mm-hmm. that that allows for a negative intrathoracic pressure, right? So when it, it just restricts the air coming back uh, coming back into the tube, right? And so there's a there's a small negative pressure created inside the, the intrathoracic cavity, right? So negative intrathoracic pressure. And you're like, well, why would I want that? Right? <clears throat> well, I want that for a couple of reasons. Remember, this is the blood in, blood out process. We as paramedics tend to look at this. I just need to get blood to the organ, right? To the brain. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you, you got to fight against ICP. ICP is always your enemy in, in cardiac arrest. Anytime you do a compression, you're spiking ICP. So we have to get blood out of the brain and we have to get blood back to the heart, right? So in that process, if we create a negative thoracic pressure in the chest, it draws blood out of the brain, hypoxic acidotic blood, draws it out of the brain, decreases intracranial pressure, fills the heart better, and gets better cerebral perfusion. So we're getting oxygenated, normal pH blood back to the brain. And so it's that blood in, blood out, right? You got to think about it much, you know, much like uh, a closed, you know, a closed loop system, you got to get the, that bad blood out, to get the blood in. And so a rescue pod helps us decrease ICP, increase cerebral perfusion. Like mm-hmm. by getting that negative interrascing pressure, we're really in that pressure regulation program right we're in the pressure regulation business here,
3: right
2: regulating pressure in the chest, regulating pressure in the brain, right how are we regulating that pressure we've got we, we've got to look at i c p and we've got to solve i c p if we're going to solve this horrendous loss rate, this horrendous intact survival rate, we've got to solve for i c p to something like that
1: mm-hmm. awesome
2: how come how come
1: this is not standard of care because Honestly, I haven't heard about this in years.
2: Um, so, so this is, it's relatively simple why this is not standard of care. So, I believe it was the, uh, NIH Prime study that, uh, happened maybe, maybe 10 years ago. I, I have to look it up to be sure. But, um, and in that study, it showed that the rescue pod had no benefit, uh, to patients in cardiac arrest. And so, okay, you know, that, that, that study had eight, over 8,000 patients in it. When you go back and look at the study, when you look at compression fractions in the study, if the patient had a compression fraction rate of over 50%, it over doubled neurologically attacked survival. If they had a compression fraction rate of under 50%, it actually hurt their survival. So we took that big study and not the sub-analysis and said it doesn't work. You go back and look at the sub-analysis. So, and that's an important point. You should never use the rescue pod if you're doing crappy CPR it'll hurt your
0: patient. Good to know. Right.
2: right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's the bottom line. So if you can't do high quality CPR, your compression fractions aren't up in the 80% range or higher. and That's not uh, a statistical analysis for me, but if they're not, if you don't have high compression fraction rates, you shouldn't be using the rescue of
1: right. You awesome. know, that's absolutely right. Because we, when we were part of the, a study, that's when we were not doing mm-hmm. high performance CPR. We were, you know, doing it, stopping, going to get a coffee, coming back, started CPR again. And, and maybe, yeah, so now now I get yep. it. Okay.
0: Okay, so that was step three. Step four is deploying the autopulse or, a you know, automated CPR device
3: to give yeah, continuous yeah, yeah. compressions.
2: Real, real quick on step three, when you, when you talk about entylo-CO2. Yes. We yes use entylo-CO2 in a number of ways to to determine patient care, right? And some of the most controversial stuff is, you know, we don't defibrillate that entylo-CO2 in a certain spot, right? Unless it's over 20. So that's why early on we're using a of CO2 to determine ventilatory rate. We're using a of CO2 to determine if we're going to determine it or not, right? Some of those things. So that's why that's in step three. Awesome. Sorry, back to step one.
0: No, you're good. And so, um, continuous compressions with a automated CPR device.
2: Yeah, I don't, yeah. I, the bottom line is, is we are relatively ineffective at doing good manual compressions. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Rate, depth, Recoil. Mm-hmm. Um, And so we have a device that will do it for us. We'll do it perfectly. We'll not get tired. We'll not get distracted. We'll not look at the, uh, you know, we'll not, uh, you know, have to interact with family and law enforcement and, and you know, three three o'clock in the morning upside down in the car, whatever, whatever's going on, right, that that distracts us. You know, we're thinking about we got to do a call in. I got to draw drugs. I'm going to have to do an IO. I'm going to have to check the rhythm. I'm check the pulse. I wonder what everybody's thinking about me. I wonder if I'm doing good or bad. Right? All that stuff. Mm-hmm. All that stuff comes into really crappy compression fraction, crappy recoil, um, poor rates. We know we're off all over the place. And so, for us, we have we have to use a mechanical CVR device to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, as as you as we talk about that, if we're doing manual compression and you're not using feedback some type of real time, right now, right here, feedback on whether or not you're doing it right, you're you're in huge trouble. Yeah. So we, I was in uh, uh, Indonesia speaking, I don't know, a year ago or so. And we did a study, we had a a couple hundred people that we were working with, not a study, we we, we put, um, these are medical professionals, we put them in the corner of the room, 70 fluorescent, one minute of CPR without feedback, and one minute of CPR with feedback. One minute, seventy-four seconds. Right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Without feedback, they were in the right rate and depth. Thirteen percent of the time. Thirteen. Yeah. One yeah. three. 13. Wow. Wow. Right. Wow. And and so I, I, I hate to say this. Doesn't you know? Win me friends, but if you have a uh, if you're in the right rate and depth, thirteen percent of the time, you should call the coroner and go do something that's going to save it life. Right. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, go save the guy that's having an MI down the road, because you're not going to save that guy. So when we, when we take that, those so same people and put a feedback device on real time, right now, feedback, that went to 47% of the time. Wow. Right? So that's tripled the proper rate and depth.
3: Mm-hmm. So if
2: you're, you, you have to be using feedback. Absolutely. If, you, if you're going to do manual compressions, feedback is an absolute 100% must. There's just no way around it.
1: Do you have a set amount of time before you apply the autopulse? That you do manual CPR, or is it just as as soon as you get there, you put it on?
2: So we so we've actually changed just just in uh, January December where we're using uh, a rescue pump. So a different story, kind of all together. But um, we so we call it the first two minutes, and so we don't. It's not really a set two minutes, but the first couple of minutes it takes to get the auto set up. You our guys will get in. They'll get their hands on the chest. They'll get a bag belt mask with a rescue pod and title CO2 and hold that seal during compressions. It's really important to hold the seal during compressions, not during ventilation necessarily during compression, which is a complete shift in, in culture. right? right? Yes. they I'm trying to get that autopulse to work during the compressions. But that, that being said, um, they'll, they'll slide a, a feedback device under the palm and the other crew will get the autopulse ready. That's about two minutes. Okay. And to be a hundred, a hundred percent, Transparent. We have been terrible at it. Mm-hmm. That because we've done so much focus on autopulse, my like guys are used like, that, just get them on the autopulse. Just yeah, right. yeah, we'll get mm-hmm. those compressions done. Let's get them on the autopulse. right? autopulse, autopulse and Obviously, I love the autopulse. but we had to go back and look at it and say, okay, we're we're horrendous at the first two minutes. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. How do we how do we fix this, right? How do we how do we get better at the first couple of minutes because everybody's focused on getting them on the autopulse. Mm-hmm. and so we've had to retrain and retrain and get that first two minutes better and better. And then actually we just recently rolled out the uh, the rescue pump as kind of a new tool. And to be honest with you, a new shiny uh, shiny thing that will help with that for, for a couple of minutes. Cool.
0: Awesome. And so let's see, that was step four. So the next step is it says heads up. Can you explain what that means?
2: Yeah, so we will put our patients up in a, in a thirty degree angle, right? We'll set our CPR patients up. Um, okay, so you're funny, moving them to the cot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, after we, as soon as we get them on the auto poles, right? We will move them onto the cot flat, and then we'll set them up to the thirty degrees. Okay. Um, yeah, absolutely. By the way, it looks, looks relatively silly when you have your uh, your full arrest patient sitting up on a gurney. right? And, uh, <laughs> and you, yeah. and we we do apneic oxygenation. Well, maybe we'll talk about it, but which means they've got a nasal cannula hanging out of their nose. They've got this long stack, you know, spilled from their endotracheal tube. They've got the rescue pod and it comes CO2 and a filter and then, you know, and then bag out mask. And they're sitting up and, you know, wheel them into the hospital. And, you know, doctors and nurses are like, what are you people doing? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. What is this? So that, the, yeah, the, uh, the, the heads up CPR is, is just, and it's, by the way, heads up CPR is free by the way,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: no, no, no cost to it. Um, it significantly decreases ICP, increases cerebral perfusion and increases uh, coronary perfusion. So, same thing. but, but heads up CPR, one caveat it's, it's got to be done with a, a rescue pod. So if you're not using a rescue pod machine, you don't up CPR. But with the rescue pod, we see significant improvement in cerebral perfusion and cardiac perfusion and ICP drops. Precipitously.
0: And that's because it's delivering blood. At a better pressure to the brain, right, versus just flat. Um,
2: yeah, but it's also right. Remember, we're talking blood in, blood out. Right. We have to get the blood out of the brain, right? And mm-hmm. so, getting the blood out of the brain, we use we use a little bit of elevation, right,
0: to yeah, our use some gravity. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, exactly. Using gravity to our benefit, so we drain more blood out of the brain. It gets more blood to the heart, and we increase ICP in that process. If you go to pig lab, and you can do this, you can do it from the pig, right? You, you put a a bolt in their in their brain to measure ICP, mm-hmm. and you lay them flat and do, do compressions and set them up to do compressions, and you can see a significant decrease in ICP in that process, along with an increase in cerebral perfusion. So,
0: cool. And then you touched on it. The next step is apneic oxygenation. What's what's that, and what's the, the thought process behind it?
2: Yeah. So, so a couple of things there is, you know, when we started saying, look, we're not going to turn off the auto pulse for anything, right? Nothing, Trump compressions, nothing. Well, and so we started saying that, we started seeing a decrease in our innovation success rates, right? Alright. All right. Mm-hmm. So, so what do we do about that? Well, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to stop depression. Right? So, mm-hmm. that's, that's not an option, right? So how are we going to improve, uh, how are we going to improve that process? We actually, uh, went to, went to, uh, Texas where they let us put an auto pulse on a cadaver, only place in the country that would let us do that. We might like, the cadaver. That's good. <laughs> um, so we, uh, yeah put an autopulse on the cadaver and we played around with a, a, a number of good things, which is kind of where we, one of the ways we, we decided to start doing heads up CPR on a gurney, uh, heads up innovation on in gurney, sorry. Um, you know, cause that improved our, our rates. But we also, you know, know from some of the studies, some of the pink studies that uh, with good mechanical CPR, that, uh, that and without ventilations, the pig will remain saturated above 85% for over two hours. So, so we, so what we did is we just bought ourselves time, right? So, how long? I'm asking you guys, how long do you have in a patient?
4: Six minutes, maybe. I mean, depending on if they're healthy, what their comorbidities are.
2: Are you
1: talking right. about during cardiac right. arrest?
2: So no, mean. I'm talking about when when you stop compressions oh. and you're oh. you're sticking the blade in their mouth, how long do you have to, to get the tube in? Oh jeez.
4: Oh sorry. Um, I thought you meant. How me, long right? do we
0: have or how long do we take, Joe?
4: <laughs> you should have about okay, 30, seconds. Yeah, thirty seconds. Yeah.
2: Thirty seconds. Yeah, how long were you caught? probably the better way to go, right? Thirty right. seconds, you're right. right? Yeah. Thirty seconds to get the tube in, or as long as you can hold your breath if you remember that process. Yeah, remember right? that. And you probably cool.
4: are holding your breath.
2: Yep. Yeah, probably. <laughs> So, so in real, though, with the nasal cannula flowing 15 liters a minute, and yes, you can turn a nasal cannula on at 15 liters, um, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as long as we're looking at their saturations and their entitled CO2, um, then I don't care how long it takes, right? I don't care.
0: Yeah, as long as you I got don't got if it takes five
2: minutes, well. Right? So, but just don't stop compressions. You mm-hmm. put the tube in, right? So you have and the so pulse box and
1: on and entitled CO2, and that's what you're monitoring during intubation.
2: Correct, correct. Okay. And we're having a hard time to be, to be 100% transparent, getting good entitled CO2 numbers because we're not moving a lot of air right. Right at that, pro- that process. But we're looking at those numbers, making sure that we're okay. And they can take as long as they want to innovate. And so that's culturally, it's been a huge change. You know, it's been the slow down, take your time, take a breath, right? Let's get the tube in the first time, don't stop compressions. We're actually moving a certain amount of air. We actually, when we start looking at our data with the auto pulse, we can see about 80 microventilations. Right, we're like, what are those little teeny micro ventilations? That aid you perfectly, right? Mm-hmm. Now that's the autopoles, right? Yeah. The autopoles movement that's moving the chest and ventilating. Mm-hmm. So we went to abnec oxidation basically so that we could buy ourselves time and not stop compressions to get the tube in.
0: So that kind of touches on innovation and capnography with the rescue pod as well. Um, the next step, this would be step eight, is the nasogastric tube. So. Gastric decompression and cardiac arrest has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. People have been doing right. that. Um, it actually was new to the department that I'm at uh, pretty recently. Um, but okay. I know that it's pretty common. Like I know, Dan and Holly, you guys use it mm-hmm. um, at the flight service you work at, right?
1: And at the fire department. Oh, really? Okay.
0: And you guys have been doing it for a while? And yeah. in the hospital. Yeah.
4: It's standard.
0: We're so behind. Well, oh, I mean, man. it's
1: not 100%. There's <laughs> some people who do and some people who... Don't.
0: Okay. So it's been included, it's just not necessarily adopted as
1: much. It's not a protocol.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, because we've had it in our protocols, but we're going to stand, we're we're trying to standardize it currently. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
4: And again, this is one of those things, it's hard to change your practice, but we've got to get, we can do it better. We need to
2: do it better.
0: So, Joe, can you, yeah, yeah, can you talk on that, the NG tubes?
2: Yeah. So every cardiac arrest gets an NG tube, right? Mm -hmm. The bottom line is if 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 I'm spending good money on a rescue pod, and sitting them heads up and doing everything I can to decrease intracranial pressure, and they've got gastric distension that increases uh, intr, you know, intracranial pressure, yeah. and therefore it increases the ICP. Now I'm just fighting myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when you didn't hit in, so there's no gastric distension, there's no increase in intracranial pressure, and there's no ICP spike in that process. You can, if you go to pig lab, and you have that ICP bolt in, right? You can push on the pig's stomach with your finger. And watch ICP go up significantly, right? Wow. A little bit of pressure on the stomach, ICP goes up. Take the finger away, it goes down. By the way, another thing that you have to be careful of is, you know, we'll take that cardiac monitor. First off, we take the cardiac monitor and we put it someplace the guy doing compressions can't see it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, I don't know, because we're not, I have no idea why we do it that way, but, and so, but, and so we have to put that cardiac monitor in front of the guy that's doing compressions with the feedback device so it's clear whether he's doing it well or not. Right, so I don't know why we always tend to put it someplace that that guy can't do But we also, you know, so when we started saying, hey, I don't want that cardiac monitor at the head of the gurney, right, under the person's head, because you can see it. I want it on the on the feet of the patient. People would put it on the the hips of the patient, and so you put the cardiac monitor at the hips, it actually ends up on the belly, yep. and it increases ICP and decreases intracranial or increases oh, wow. inner or pressure.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right, and so not not on the belly. I want it on their ankles. Right, it's got to be on the ankles, somewhere down there. You put it on the belly you're going to fry some brain cells. So just, just a thought. I don't know where I was when
0: we started that process. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. I, and I think, I think one of the coolest things that just doing some basic research on what you guys are doing is the fact that you guys are so dialed into, you know, monitoring the improvements or the, you know, the stuff that you want to change about the way you're responding on these calls. You're picking up those little, little things like that, that can actually have a, a pretty significant uh, difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. I've yeah. even heard of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
2: we, we just got to be careful of what we're doing. Right? We got to look at what we're doing. We have got to rethink or unlearn, or however you want to say it, right, what we're doing and stuff. You know, we're we're losing ninety percent of these patients, so we did, we're doing a ton of stuff wrong. But, and 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 I'll be hundred percent honest with you when we get when we get done with this conversation. I'm going to tell you that probably fifty percent of what I've told you today is wrong. Right. <laughs> right. I, I just I just I just don't know which fifty percent yet. I will. <laughs> I right? love that. <laughs> well, I love
4: that you've incorporated a lot of the um, really good airway skills into your um ROSC management or your CPR management, right. which is ramping the patient, pre-oxygenation, apneic oxygenation. Yep.
1: Great seal on the BVM. Great
4: seal on the BVM. And now you're really setting yourself up not only for great success with your CPR, but with your intubation that's right. coming up next. Yes.
2: Yes. And I think, you know, as we talked about that, just as a, as a caveat, um, you know, we have to be really careful at inventory rates, Right. Right. When we look at when we look at all of the data, and we when we look at real data on real calls, when we look at video feedback from malls and parking lots and places that are filming cardiac arrests. We know that on average, we're ventilating for patients somewhere in the forty range. Dang. In the forty range, right, which is increasing wow. intrapulmonary pressure, right, dead air mm-hmm. trapping in the lungs, all kinds of terrible stuff that we all know, and and so that's why we go back and look at end CO2 and saturation as how we ventilate. We don't, you know, the book says what? 10 to 12 minutes, right? Right. right. We should we, we should burn the book, by the way. <laughs> um, Thank you. Right? Because the book says 10 to 12 a minute because it, cause it doesn't believe. So it, the, the bottom line is mm-hmm. you should ventilate them based on end CO2 and saturation, not at a 10 to 12-minute number. Right. And that's
4: not co- taking into account how much volume you're putting in for each squeeze. Like, Absolutely. I've got small hands, so maybe I'm only putting in 400 mils, but... Yeah. The big guy next to me might put in eight hundred, mm-hmm. pretty high minute volume. Yeah.
2: thank you. I got some. I got some California firefighter guys, right? They got some guns going. Yeah, right. And they they can they can empty every inch of that bag into the patient's lungs <laughs> at, at a rate of you know thirty forty a minute. Right. So
0: the burning multiple BVMs on a call. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's their workout for the day.
0: And Joe, I might yeah. I might butcher this uh, quote that I saw next to your name um, doing a Google search on you, but you had a slide up on one of a, pre, uh, a presentation that you gave and it said something along the lines of what you know is getting in the way of doing it right.
2: Yeah. I think you know, we, I call, we initially called this presentation when we first started doing it, unlearning what you think you know about CPR,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? Cause you think that everything we're doing is the right way to do it. We think that early defibrillation is the right way to go and give epi and you know, rhythm check, pulse check, stop, you know, hold CPR, Rhythm check, pulse check. Let's sit here for two minutes while we all admire the monitor, mm-hmm. right, and try to decide whether that's you know is that is that a, is that you know triggered the rhythm with a couple of premature beats or like who cares? Can right? you print mm-hmm. a strips so I, I can look at uh, it? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the bottom line is you know who who cares what the monitor says? I only want to know one thing when I look at the monitor in cardiac arrest. To be honest, with you. but so first off, if their end with CO two isn't above twenty, I don't look at the monitor. I don't care,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? Because I'm not going to defibrillate under 20 and nothing on the monitor that the monitor is going to tell me is going to, it's going to tell me something I, I care about. So,
0: and so explain why you wouldn't explain for the listeners why you wouldn't defibrillate if your end title is under 20.
2: Okay. So yeah, so this is what probably get one of the, the largest pushbacks from, um, you know, we've had some uh, statements with directors that, that said they're going to file malpractice against departments that are, that institute this, this policy, but this, this so so let me ask you this. Um, why do we differently? What's the goal?
0: Well, the goal is to shock a shockable heart, to put it back into a perfusing rhythm.
2: Okay, so I would say number two, you're correct, and number one, you're not, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> so, <laughs> so when you say the goal is to shock a shockable heart, I wouldn't disagree with you. Mm-hmm. But I would agree with you that the goal is to, to change that patient into a perfusing rhythm, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm with you halfway on that. But
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't do that, right? We just, you know, early defibrillation, early defibrillation, early defibrillation. That's mm-hmm. what we got to do, regardless if it's going to be successful or not. We don't care. We're just going to do the book that says, says defibrillate it. <clears throat> So if you defibrillate an acidotic hypoxic heart, and we've all done this, you distribute that guy, internal CO2 is low, it's early in the code, you're not doing good compressions, you distribute a V VDIB into a system, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And you never get them back.
1: Happens all We've the all time.
2: We've all done it. I've, I've done it tons of times in my career. And now they're so stable. Our, yes. <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> We've we stabilized them. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to do that, right? We want to, we want to change that rhythm into a fusible rhythm. So I want the heart to not be hypoxic. I want it to be well oxygenated, and I want the pH to be as correct as I can make it before I deliver electrical energy. And so, when you look at, at our data, and there's some studies out there uh, out in Japan, um, I'd have to look uh, to give you the exact the exact quote. But when you look at just our data in Rialto, and it's anecdotal. We don't run, you know, ten thousand calls, ten thousand cardiac arrests a year. But when, when we look, go back and look at, when we defibrillated patients who had an entitle CO2 below 20, our ROSC rate was 9%. Right? 9. When we defibrillated patients with an entitle CO2 over 20, our ROSC rate was 73%. Wow. Wow. So,
1: hey, Joe, can I compelling. ask, can I ask how many yeah. cardiac arrests a year on average do you run?
2: Yeah, so we, we have about 130, uh, people that are in arrest when we get to them we work up about a hundred, a little less than a hundred of those every year.
1: Okay. So they make Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome.
0: Uh, okay. So that was, uh,
3: the one, and,
2: and, and, let me, can, can I just say, and I'll, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I just, it, we can't, we cannot continue to do medicine like this. Oh, we can't no. just defibrillate every, everybody because it's what it says in the book. Right. It's not getting us where we need to go. So we got to stop it. Right. And we've got to look at it and go back and say, we can't do medicine like this, right? We I'm not going to pay you guys to do mm-hmm. paramedicine and defibrillate everybody because somewhere in some book it says that's what we should do. If it's right. getting you, 90% of your patients are dying. Mm-hmm. That makes sense?
3: Totally. But, okay. Yeah, I love okay. it. I'll,
2: I'll settle down, I promise.
0: No, <laughs> no, 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 We're getting you fired up. I like this. <laughs> um, so the next step is placing an IV and medications as needed, which... Um, th- that one is so funny to me because it, it makes so much sense. But when I look back on every cardiac arrest call I've ever been on, there is one medic who jumps on the IV right, right away. off the bat. Like we need <laughs> right, that now, right now. right now. And, you know, it's, I'll let you talk about it, but it, it's hilarious to me that, uh you know, when you look at the way that we've divvied out the roles that need to be um, given on a cardiac arrest that this is like, I got the IV, you know, like right. it's just one of those things <laughs> that they're all gung ho to go do.
2: Yeah. So this is a, this is a significant cultural change yet. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're still not perfect at it. Right. We're still, we're still working through it, but yeah, somebody wants to jump in into the IV or IO, right. Get that done. Okay. So tell me what an IV or IO is going to do for your cardiac arrest patient. Right. What is the Tell me, tell me where the study shows that, that that's going to increase survivability, increase their lumpy attack survival. It's going to increase Ross rates. What's it going to do for you?
1: Right.
3: Well,
2: well we have to, right? We have to. Well, so, I mean, <laughs> well,
1: if you were to ask 90% of the people at my fire department that, they'd say, well, we need to give epi as soon as possible because that's right. what we're told to do.
2: Do well, so you want to go down the epi road?
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> so, yeah.
2: So I think... When you look at epinephrine, so we're relatively clear that epinephrine decreases cerebral, cerebral drainage, decreases cerebral perfusion, right, um, and increases ICP.
1: So there, are, okay, are, are there, there's data behind that, correct?
2: There is absolutely, absolutely. Right?
1: And just so, so I can put and, this out there real quick, Joe,
0: will you send some of these supportive documents so I can put them in the show notes so that people can refer to those um, sure, on the website? Absolutely. That'd be great.
2: Yeah. So when you look at that, so when you go to pig lab, right, and you push epinephrine on the pig that's getting compressions and they're, they're, you know, we're, we're doing that whole process, right, you can, you can see the drainage goes down, you can see that cerebral perfusion goes down, ICP goes up, right? So that's, that's relatively, relatively clear. So when you look at the, there's just a recent study that, that uh, got published out in the UK, um, over 8,000 folks in that study also, and they, you know, in the conclusions, they clearly state that, um, the use of epinephrine resulted in significantly higher 30 day survival than the use of SIBO. Alright, good enough. I'm in the early and often. Right?
1: Every three to five. Right. <laughs> sure. All day long.
2: <laughs> right. yeah, let's empty e. that drug box. You know, these drugs yeah. save lives. But the other, the other part of the conclusion is that the rate of favorable neurologic outcome, uh, because so I'm sorry, there was, this, there was no significance in, the, in the, the two groups because there was significant severe neurologic impairment in those survivors, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, oh, wait a minute. So there's neuro- neurologic impairment in the survivors. So I, okay, no epi. Nobody gets epi, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, crap, I don't know what to do, right? Do you can right. give epi or not give epi? Yep. And so I would kind of propose that there's probably a sweet spot here. Right, that is that is. So uh, let let me give you. I'm going to give give you two scenarios, and then you guys can answer, and then we'll kind of go from there. But if if I gave you a caveat, if I said, if I said to you, look, your family member your your mother, your brother, your daughter, your 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 wife, husband, whatever your family member is in cardiac arrest, and I'm going to guarantee that you're going to get ROSK. Okay, here's the caveat. I'll guarantee you're going to get ROSK. You can choose if you want to get happy or not. Do you want to get happy?
4: After you guarantee we're going to get Rosk.
2: I guarantee you're going to get ROSC. No. Yeah, no, absolutely not, right? If we don't need because it, we don't want, you it. don't want Yeah, you don't want the neurological impairment that, that, that comes with EPI, right? Right. So let me take it the other way. If I say you will not get ROSC on your family, your mother, your brother, your daughter, your wife, husband, whatever, you will not get ROSC without EPI. Do you want it? Oh, boy. Every time. Every time, right? That yeah. Does, those patients that don't get ROSS don't have very good neurological ability, right? Right. right. <laughs> so so there's probably a sweet spot for epinephrine. There's probably something. And there's probably some dosing regimens, um, maybe microdosing, maybe a drip. Uh there might be some dosing regimens that might get us there better that don't affect uh intracranial pressure and you know cerebral confusion as much. But I can tell you for sure when when you don't want to get it. You don't want to give up when you're doing crappy CPR. Your patient's laying flat. You don't have a rescue pod in place. You're overventilating them, so they don't have a negative irithrastic pressure. And then we, in the first two, three, four minutes, shove a bunch of epi in there, mm-hmm. increase ICP, decrease your report perfusion, burn a billion brain cells. That's not what you want to give it. Is
0: Is it safe to say right. that people are, you know, maybe they haven't actively thought about it this way, but they're giving epi to achieve some of the objectives that these other steps that you guys have are doing a much better job of.
2: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. I think that's true. But the reason you see our IV as the the last part of our wheel of survival is, is we want to take that first 15 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. We want to optimize, uh, we want to optimize oscillation. We want to optimize cerebral perfusion. We want to optimize cardiac perfusion. We want to optimize, uh, you know, the pH balance. We want that patient optimized. And if, if we've done all that and we don't have loss back in 15, 20 minutes, whatever that number looks like, then maybe epi a good alternative, mm-hmm. right? Because, because we've optimized everything else. It's going to have a much lesser effect on, on ICP and the brain damage than it would have early on. So that's why you see it as the last thing we do is start an IV. And to be honest with you, our local EMS agency, you know, says in our protocol that we have to give Epi as soon as we establish Venus access.
3: Hmm.
2: So you right. nice see to that we put Venus. Yeah, like <laughs> <Okay. laughs> we put venous access as the last thing, right? It's, it's the least it's one of the tools that has the least impact, uh, positive impact on survival. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna put it at the end, and that also lets us delay epinephrine to a to a place where we think it might be appropriate if we haven't gotten lost by it
0: And so Joe, I think this is kind of a a cool thing just to touch on it for Listeners, you're, you have a fire-based EMS department, or I'm sorry, EMS. Correct. Did I say that right? EMS-based fire department? Whatever. <laughs> um, that and the other thing. But you also work with a private ambulance in your district, correct?
2: Um, so, So no, we, we provide all of the transport um, okay. within the city. We okay. do get some mutual aid from, uh, from AMR when we're out of ambulances, but 98% of our calls, if not more, um, are run by our our um, our ambulance service. Okay. The fire
3: department. Yeah,
2: okay, military. good to know. We run a we run a single function paramedic and EMT on the ambulances, and then a dual function medic uh, firefighter on the engine.
0: Awesome. And then the Joe, the last step is transport decision based on end title, and then that includes your post ROSC care.
2: Yeah. So so remember that we're looking at if. The enthalpy CO2 is over 15, then we're going to stay on team for 30 minutes. So um, that's why that transfer- transportation decision is based on our enthalpy CO2. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll be staying on team for 30 minutes, and then we'll get route, But we'll only get ground if those if those patients have have an enthalpy CO2 of over 15 and trending up. We'll actually use enthalpy CO2 to help us determine whether we're going to we're going to determine death. Right? Mm-hmm. If if enthalpy CO2 is below 15, trending downwards. As long as, with one caveat, we we messed it up, by the way. But as long as the tube's in the right hole, right, right, right. <laughs> right. right. We've, we've we've done it, right. This is I think this is important that some of the realities of, of making significant change is that you're going to move focus to a different location, and you're going to make some mistakes on that focus, right? So we're focused on end CO two, end title CO two, end timeless CO two, and that number's dropping, and my guys are trying to bag on that number, right? They're like, wait right. a minute, it's going down. I need to slow down my bagging. I need to right now, How's this working? What's going on? Um, and we've had those guys take that patient to the hospital with the tube in the wrong hole, right? Because they're focused on what we're trying to accomplish. Right. And to be honest with you, nobody in my department has ever gotten in trouble for cardiac survivability. Our, our, you know, our motto is: let's be better tomorrow. Let's be better tomorrow. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. We screwed that up. Look at it. and We'll be better tomorrow.
0: That's awesome. Okay. I like that. Yep. I love that. Um. So. One of the things that I know is out there that I think we should briefly touch on, I know we could probably talk about it for an hour, but is the Utstein criteria. And I know that it's a little bit controversial because it's pretty limiting, but it's also that one stat that departments love to either keep to themselves or market very heavily. So what's, what's your thought on that, good or bad, and, you know, what and, can we and do? And what to is it? it? If you could explain yeah. yeah, yeah, you yeah gotta, I
2: know what it is. Well, so, so what is, oh, sorry, what is, what is our us being or what is us
0: Um Well, Dan kind of threw that question in last uh, second there. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> no let's, uh, let's define it first and then, or, you know, talk about what it is first and then um, what you guys yeah. do
2: with it. Yeah. So you have to, you know, to, 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 for a patient to be included in us criteria, they have to be in a witness cardiac arrest. They have to uh, be in a shockable rhythm. Have CPR uh, CPR done prior to arrival. Right, those are the three criteria: witness cardiac arrest, CPR prior to arrival, and being a shockable rhythm. So, those are the patients because we have defined those patients as those are the only patients that are survival. Right, nobody survives Um By the way, we're we're, we're working around a forty percent uh, assistently rate, uh, Ross rate. But um, so the, we define that because nobody survives assistently, so we want to exclude all those patients and nobody survives not getting compression prior to arrival or being a witness. We want to exclude all those patients. And so we're going to use this criteria to be inclusive, right, to include just those patients that meet those criteria. Correct. Which is cool, right, it's a good way to kind of have a common measuring foundation, right? That being said, less than 10% of our patients meet that criteria. Right. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's go back, and, and I'll, I'll tout Uchstein all day long. right? I'll go, oh, seen's great, because I'll put it on the front page of the newspaper. Our last time we measured Uchstein, we were at 86%. Yeah. Right? 86%. You want me to go tell everybody how cool we are? 86%. <laughs> but yeah. but that's, that's 80%, 6% of the 10%, right? Right. I still got a bunch of my patients dying. I got to do something about, say, assistance.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I got to do something about the people that had depression prior to arrival. Right? I gotta do something about the patients that weren't witnessed. I gotta work on those patients. I gotta work on them longer. We gotta do more work. You know, when we first started saying that you're, we're, you're gonna stay on scene for 30 minutes, our asystically loss rate was 23%. Asystole, right? Mm-hmm. And we said you're gonna stay on scene for 30 minutes. We went to 41% loss rate for asystically.
1: Wow. When you so, stayed on scene?
2: When well, we stayed on scene for 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, That's absolutely. Awesome. So um, yeah, we had to we had to look at that and say hmm, okay, how do we save all of our patients regardless of whether they had CPR prior arrival, regardless if they had compressions, regardless if they're a shockable rhythm or not? I, 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 I have citizens. I got a hundred thousand citizens that I got to save, and they don't care what the USP criteria is. They only care whether their right whether their grandpa or husband or wife or child survived cardiac arrest,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? And that's that's what we're you know that's what we're paid to do. We're paid to fix those people or do the best we possibly can. And so we got to look at the whole criteria. I, I you know, I, I've seen as I've seen and, and those numbers can be uh, good. We just can't rely on that unless you're okay with ruling out 90% of cardiac arrest. Right? right. I love that. But, yeah, we're not. So
0: Very cool. Um, and then, so that's, that's your wheel of survival, but one of the things that you touched on um, kind of in the beginning that you wanted to go back over was. The focus on minimizing pauses because nothing trumps compressions. And so, uh, okay. um, if I have this correctly, I see four things you guys focus on. But let's go over the the areas that you have that you've identified that are they're going to require a pause, and then the allowed amount of seconds for that pause.
2: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we. We have defined in writing in policy what our or acceptable pauses CPR are. Are are bad mm-hmm. English, <laughs> but um, and and so you know we com- we commonly say that if you don't define in writing what your acceptable positive CPR are, you'll have more pauses than our acceptable right? every yeah, time. Right. Like so it. you got to define it in writing. We know that this that pausing causes a decrease in survival, but we don't really want to write it down or make it a policy. Right. We're just going to hey, don't pause much. So yeah, we've just we've written do down in policy what the acceptable pauses are. Outside of safety, right? Again, if somebody's shooting at you, you know, all that's off. Sure. Right. But so um and if you look at the these four things we're gonna talk about, these four things I get something for. I buy something for every pause. If you're gonna pause, you better buy something for the patient. You know what I mean? Right? Sure. So well we like so number one is place a feedback device. So you know, we get there, we start compressions. We take what well, we use, uh, the Zoll X series and we use the pop for a feedback device. And so, you know, my guys will literally lift their palms up and back on the chest and start, start with that feedback device. It mm-hmm. takes about a second pause to do that. And so for that second, what do I get? Remember we talked earlier that I can triple compression pressure.
3: Yeah. Right. Right.
2: Right. right? I think I can triple the effectiveness of, of, uh, of CPR if I just have a feedback device. So for, I'm going to buy for that one second. I'm going to buy tripling, A. Of, of effectiveness of CPR. So I'm in, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll pause for a second to do that. That's number one. So two is to place a posterior pad. We talked a little bit about that earlier, right? The reason we go anterior, posterior, better effectiveness of the fibrillation, and it gets better, a clearer vision of the underlying rhythm when we're doing compressions. Um, <clears throat> so I'll place, I'll place a, a posterior pad. It takes me about five seconds to hit the patient up, slap that pad on the back, patient down. Mm-hmm. Now, my guys actually have integrated that into placing the auto pulse on <laughs>
0: to some extent, right? So, Right. You lift them up to place the device, put the pad on, yeah. put them back down on the device.
3: Okay,
2: Right, right. Um, but what do I get for that? I get, I get a, a better effective defibrillation for that. I get a better view for that. I don't have to stop compressions as much to, to look at that, right? So I have a better view. I have better defibrillation by putting that pad there going to cost me five seconds. And will I take that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and by the way, let me, let me go off on a quick, quick tangent.
3: Sure. We love tangents.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> when, uh, when, when we look at the cardiac monitor, right? And, and by the way, if, if I haven't said this to be 100% transparent, I have done everything wrong in cardiac arrest since I started. I've never actually run a call. By, right. When I look at the way we should run a call, hmm. you know, I haven't been out running calls in the field for 15 years. And I've done everything wrong, so I'm not. I'm not bagging on anybody. But when you when you stop, when you do a pulse check, rhythm check, right? This is how we normally how you do it in the real world. Right. Go, okay, we need to check, right? Everybody stops. Somebody checks, grabs your wrist. You look at the monitor, right? Stop CPR, and then you have this whole conversation, right? right. <laughs> Every time, right? You yeah. know, is that an idiot of a particular rhythm? Is that a P.A.C. or a P.J.C. or that? what is that? I don't know. Hey right? Dan, and come you feel have, this.
0: I think I feel something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, come right. Over, Dan, come over hey, here. Well, is that, is that atrial or is that ventricular? I'm not sure, right? Right. And really, we only care about one thing. Is it BFib or is it not? Right? And, right? And again, we only really care about that if the end of CO2 for us is over 20, Good rolling as a fibrillate is over 20. But that being the case, so, so now, in my department, if we're going to look at them, if we, if we can't see the underlying rhythm very well, right? We're looking at it and going, I'm not sure if that's BFib or not. The end of CO2 is over 20. <sighs> I'm not sure what that is, right? For whatever reason, the image isn't great. So how do we, how do we check a rhythm? Right. So now we say, okay, guys, we're going to have to prepare to check a rhythm. So somebody ready to pause the autopulse, push print on the monitor. Ready? Pause the autopulse one, one thousand, two, one thousand, start the autopulse, turn print off on the monitor, take the strip out, the paper, and everybody can pass it around and have a discussion about what it looks like because compressions are going on. Right.
3: Cool. So, yeah.
2: so okay. that two second pause, if you have to check, you, you check the paper. You no know, check the monitor, one one thousand two one thousand back on the chest, and we'll look at the paper. And if you guys want to admire the paper, have a little popcorn, you know, and uh, and have that whole thing, that's, that's cool, but.
4: Calipers.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow, that's a long time ago. Um, so I'm sorry about the tangent, but if you're going to check a rhythm, right, you should check it with a two second pause, not with a two minute pause, which is how we all do it. That's a great idea. I love
0: that. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. Thanks. Um, okay. So I'm sorry. Back to the four pauses of of CPR. So that was, that was number two, right? Number two was place a posterior defibrillation pad Mm -hmm. about five seconds maximum, but I'm buying something for that. Right. Um, number three there is place a mechanical CPR device. Right. Uh, in five seconds, right? Yep. And so everybody will say to me everywhere I go, Oh, come on, Joe, you can't put an auto pulse on in five seconds right? You can't put a Lucas device on in five seconds. You can't do it. It's not possible. It takes longer than that. Don't, don't lie to us until it takes five seconds.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I will always tell them, no, 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 you're, you're answering or asking the wrong question. Right. The question is how long it takes to put the device on. The question is how long are you off the chest Correct. to put the device on?
0: The actual pause in be, the CPR.
2: Yeah, yeah. But We can be off the chest for five seconds, right? That's our maximum allowable auto pulse on. We actually sit the patient up, slide the on pulse on, lay the patient back down. And we have a guy come in from the right, uh the right side of the the right shoulder area and start compressions over the right shoulder while they're working on putting the strap together and getting the autopulse going. Mm -hmm. Right? So that our pause is five seconds. So not putting the autopulse on isn't five seconds, but the pause is five seconds to put that device on. And will I will I spend five seconds? Will I will I purchase something for five seconds? I will because using a mechanical C P R device that has 100% 100% compression fraction that has the right rate, the right depth, and the right recoil, right? That's that's, that's huge. That's, that's, that's where I want to be, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'll spend five seconds for that patient, you know, off the chest time to buy, place a mechanical CPR device. So we can do that you know, all day long. And so, the, and the last of the four pauses is starting the mechanical device. Mm-hmm. So the mechanical device, and, and maybe the folks in the will kill me because I don't know the proper terms and everything, but there's a, a load distributing band yep. on the back of the autopulse, pulse, right? Um And if you're touching or pushing the pa- pushing on the patient or moving the patient, they can't properly measure the size of the chest, and it will error. So those two seconds, I got. I got to have. Right, I got it for those two seconds. You can't touch the patient, and the the band's got a size to get to get everything straightened around before it starts compressions. And so we'll also spend those two seconds um, to to get that mechanical CPR device doing perfect compressions on that size patient. So sure. those are the. the
0: Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, Joe, I'm going to save you. I think they call it a life band. Oh, yeah. the lowest band. I think Zol calls it a oh, life band.
2: Okay, okay. So you're yeah, back you're, in your good you're graces right. now. Oh, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, whatever the sensor is, or the black sensor on the back of the, on the uh, front of the autopulse that goes in the back of the patient that that uh, that senses the size of the patient and the weight and all that stuff and measuring it. You know, mm-hmm. to make make compressions, you know, perfect. And so that's got to be you can't touch the patient when that but that sizing, otherwise can you in get trouble.
1: can you get most patients in the life band, most like big ones or little ones and such? Because I know Lucas, we yes. have some problems with that.
2: So, so we've had patients up to almost 400 pounds. Um, and I, I'm sure there's a parameter the Zoll says weight wise, um, right. but um, but they also say as long as the patient will fit. Because we've had some larger patients on there, but we have had patients that are too large for the for the audible, no question. Okay. Which is another, another caveat that you gotta kinda of look at is that since we have a mechanical CPR device, we aren't that good at manual compressions when we actually right. have to do them. Mm-hmm. Right? right? And so, so that, yeah, that's, that's something you gotta work on and say, hey, you're gonna to have to work on this because we're gonna have those patients that don't fit on the autopulse mm-hmm. and we're gonna to have to be better at, the, at, the, in manual compressions. So.
1: And so then you're just working the code like the rest of us work a code. <laughs> to some extent, yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Like the
0: common man. Yeah, the con. <laughs> so Joe, that was really all I had for the episode today, but um, how can people get a hold of you if they want to chat about this stuff, maybe for their own department or if they have some questions that, you know, they're trying to implement something and they want to run it by you or I'm sure you're a busy guy, but um, is there a way to get a hold of you if they had a question?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, we're, uh, my boss said we're out to save the world and she has to be proving that. <laughs> but uh you can uh yeah, you can always get a hold of me at uh, J Powell, that's the letter J P O W E L L at Confire C O N F I R E dot org. J Powell at Confire.org. You can shoot me an email and say hey you're interested or uh you know if you have any questions or, or concerns or if there's any way we can help you uh save save more people uh then, then we're definitely in.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And I guess you know, to kind of finish things up a little bit, where, where do you want to see this whole thing go? Cause I, you know, if, if I'm getting this correct, this is a constantly changing and evolving process for you. You guys aren't sold that this is, you know, the way to do it for, you know, the end of time. So where do you guys see this thing kind of moving to next? And what are some things that you want to see happen in the industry to maybe supplement that?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, You know, like I said earlier, I think, you know, probably 50% of what we're, what we're doing now is wrong. We just don't know what 50%. We've got to, we've got to continue to look at that. We've got to get, we've got to gather more data. We have to have more, more agencies, more departments, right? More doctors, nurses, hospitals, paramedics, firefighters, right? We need them on board doing this and getting the data so that we can, we can see what, what's working and not working. Um, you know, we're doing a couple of things differently. Um, at this moment, we rolled out, we rolled out the rescue pump. Which is a, uh, um, a a pump that that uh, does compression, but also pulls up on the chest, right? So you get an active compression decompression
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, to improve cerebral perfusion, right? So it, it aids in getting that negative interthoracic pressure. So we just rolled out that uh, the, the rescue pump in uh, in late December, early January to help improve the first few minutes, and and actually we're doing that for six minutes before we put the auto on, but um, and and. Very anecdotally, we see a, a fairly significant rise in our neurology attack survival, uh, mm-hmm. across the board. So, but, uh, but that being said, we've, we've only been doing that since late December and COVID came along in March and, you know, we've all been COVID focused, uh, ever since. Yes. So, um, yes. man, we haven't had a good chance to look at those numbers. So we've done that. We are, we're also, uh, doing a, a trial study on, uh, regional oximetry or RSOT from a lobe oximetry where uh, so we're putting a basically a, a, a pulse oximeter type device on the forehead of the patient right frontal lobe of the brain as far as the from heart you can get and are we perfusing the brain or not is heads up helping perfuse the brain is that be perfusing or not perfusing the brain is an ITV working is, what's our what's our uh, respiratory rate what do we what are we bagging those patients at and what does that number look like and so we're just we I mean we, we've had it for a little while but we're just because it's not really used in the field, we're we're trying to figure out what good and bad is, right? And we're we're very early on in that process, but I think it's going to be able to tell us where we are with with frontal lobe vaccination right? What's working there and what's not working? There. Which one of these seven tools that we use is is working the best and which one's not working? And what how do they work in conjunction, right? Cool. So that um, awesome. I think that that's going to be it's going to be exciting. I think long term. Um, not, I think long term, I know long term, here's, here's, here's my goal. And I have said this in every lecture I've done in the last year and a half is, you know, so we have, we have a moonshot for 2030 with our advanced cardiac retestation or our ACR program. So th- that moonshot for 2030 is that we get to 50.1% intact survival somewhere, some agency, some country, I don't care, somewhere. We have an agency that's at fifty point one percent in their monthly tax survival by twenty thirty. That's wow. our goal, and we're gonna we're gonna get there. We that's can nice. get there. I need people though. I need people, I need their data, I need to know what's working and not working, what works for them in the field, which is why we do all this stuff, which is why we talk about it, we say, Look, right, because you're gonna look at something eventually and go, Hey Joe, you know, you've been you've been you've been uh can I say smoking dope. I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> oh, okay, whatever you want. Hey, man, we're in Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, you've been smoking dope, right? And, and this, uh, this ICD or this you know, delayed defibrillation or whatever doesn't work. This works, right? Okay, right? Because I'm 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 in the forest, and I might not see the you know, the forest from the trees. And you know, I need other people to say, "Hey, this is working and not working. This is what our data shows." Um, and so we can get there. We can get to the moonshots at fifty point one percent by twenty thirty. But I just need other people involved. I need other data. And, and the right. other thing, to uh, not another caveat is I think the importance of this the program and what's been developed you know in Rialto and the, the advanced uh, cardiac resuscitation program is that we've proven that it's reproducible. So we have um, we have plenty of departments that have taken it over. Some, you know, some namely, uh, Lawrence from Kansas, Naperville, Illinois, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they said, Look, we're going to do what you tell us to do. We just come in, we're going to bring everybody in on overtime, we're going to do what you tell us to do. Just tell us what to do. And we have, right? And their numbers are fantastic, That's right? Smart. Their, their neurologic survival numbers, their Ross numbers. Um, so they, the, the process, you know, the magic about McDonald's isn't that it, they can make a burger or fries. The magic is that it's reproducible,
3: mm-hmm. right? Right.
2: Same thing here, right? If we couldn't reproduce any of the stuff we're doing in Rialto at any other department, then it's cool, but it's not that great. But if it's reproducible, and we've proven it is. Then, then it's then it's really exciting. We can reproduce this, and then take the next step, and then the next step. And by twenty thirty, we're going to be at fifty point one percent these after survival somewhere.
1: That's so rad. I know where I'm moving to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. retiring <laughs> in Rialto. <laughs> so Rialto.
0: Well, Joe, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show and for sharing what you guys are doing. Um, it's inspiring. It's it's really fun stuff to learn about, and I kind of geek out on the frontal lobe stuff. That just seems
3: yeah, that's, awesome. It's so exciting
4: to hear you. You've been a medic or you've been a firefighter for forty something years, and you are so passionate about changing your practice, and that's Absolutely. really inspiring.
1: And still knowing that you're still 50% wrong and willing to change <laughs> that, that just amazes me.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, we have to be open to that, right? We really have to. Right. We have to work at being open, right? Because our ego get in the way. right? No, nah, no, we're right. We're right. And mm-hmm. we have to work at being, being really open to maybe we're not right. Or just, uh, just so accepting maybe the we fact can that, that
4: this is how we've always done it.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Stuck in that rut. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think anything. You know, I don't think there's probably there's probably nothing – uh, in in EMS, that we have a, a poorer uh, poorer outcome, and maybe traumatic cardiac arrest, right? Maybe mm-hmm. traumatic cardiac arrest. That's the only thing we have a worse outcome than cardiac arrest. But, I mean, and so people will go, hey, Joe, you know, you guys are really sharp. You took this over and did all these things. I'm like, no, we're not that sharp. It's low-hanging fruit, right? Mm-hmm. 90% of my patients are dying. I can't really hurt them, right? right, right. So we, we got to move it forward, right? It's yeah. low-hanging fruit. I didn't get something that's got an 87% survival and you know, fixed it by five percent. I did something that's terrible, and and made some big changes, and that's that's relatively simple.
0: So, awesome. Well, again, thanks for your time. And uh, yeah, if you want to reach out to Joe, his uh, contact information is going to be in the show notes. And uh, just one more time, Joe, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Uh,
2: you got it. It's, it's, yeah, it's an honor to be on. I appreciate it.